You're listening to the Broadway Podcast Network. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather, now at chumpacasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I want to be a producer with a hit show on Broadway. You're listening to the Producers Perspective Podcast with your host, Tony Award winner, Ken Davenport. Hey, everybody. In just a few moments, we're going to get to Michael John LaCusa and this week's podcast where he's going to talk about how cold calling Hal Prince helped jumpstart his career and the three things he tells his Tisch writing students. It's a great podcast, so we'll get to it in a second. But before we do, I wanted to tell you about this week's sponsor, AJV Media, a company that video records live events, actor reels, corporate presentations, legal proceedings, even human interest interviews and crowdfunding campaign videos. AJV Media plans, adapts, and delivers, and they're available for you. Again, we use this company all the time. They're very professional. They're very, very quick, which says a lot in our industry. So if you're interested, go check them out. You can find AJV Media at ajvmedia.com. And now let's hear from Michael John. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Hey, it's Ken. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, and I hope it's pulling back the curtain on this business of Broadway. If you're looking to learn more about what makes this industry tick, go to my website, KenDavenport.com, and sign up for my weekly newsletter. I'll send you one email a week, one article about what I'm seeing, trends, insights, marketing ideas on what's happening on Broadway right now. That's KenDavenport.com. Hope to see you there and in your inbox. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the podcast. Today, I am thrilled to have with me in my office the five-time Tony-nominated Michael John LaCusa. Welcome, Michael. Hello, sir. Thank you for having me. So you probably first think of uh, Michael John as a composer. I know that's probably what comes to my mind, what I think, but he's actually a composer, lyricist, book writer as well. He's one of those that does it all. In fact, I found it interesting that three of your five Tony nominations are for best book. Is that true? true? That's true. Uh, 
he's the author of First Lady Suite, First Daughter Suite, Giant, and more, uh, as well as Hello Again, Marie Christine, and The Wild Party. So I want to go back to your youth. What was the first musical you ever saw? My youth. I'm still in my youth. Ken, um, my first musical I ever saw was Camelot, I believe, in a high school production of Camelot. Were you in it, or were you just... No, no, as a child. I must have been like five years old or something. So I do remember it very, very clearly. And were you taken to it? Smitten. Smitten. People were living what what was going on in my brain every day as a five-year-old. They were singing and telling the story at the same time. I just, it just was like, I live there. You know, I don't know why. It was just immediate. It was immediate. Were you a musician at this point? Had you picked up Um, anything yet? Five, no. But I was starting to write words to nursery rhymes that already had songs to them, for instance, or rewriting the lyrics to Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So <laughs> words came before music Not that they needed any rewriting, but I was, you know, you, you know, uh, yeah, I mean, well, that was it. I also sang, too, as a kid, too. So I was a singer as well. Yeah. And when did you decide that... Not today, as you can tell, with my voice. No singing. When did you decide that writing or the theater was something you wanted to be involved in for good, if you will. Well, um, I had a fourth grade teacher named Mrs. Hammer, and you never, you never did anything that Mrs. Hammer didn't want you to do, or you did everything that Mrs. Hammer wanted you to do. And um, I wrote a musical for my fourth grade class, and they did it, and, she, and it was fun. And then she came to me afterwards. She, she went, when you grow up, you're going to write musicals. And I just never had any other thing that I was going to do, because Mrs. Hammer told me that that was what I was going to do. Mrs. It's a real true, that's a true story. Has she seen your shows? Yes, she did. She got to see several of them before she passed. Oh, yeah, it was great. I bet. Yeah, it was wonderful sharing sharing what my career was with her eventually. I just sure loved. I loved how you were like, oh yeah. So I wrote the a musical in the fourth grade, just like you do. Uh, just like you do, right? Well, the thing is weird. It's just like it just always was what I wanted to do. What was that musical? Um, it was some kind of cross between. Wizard of Oz, obviously a big reference in my life, and um, the ESLA, Patty Hearst and something. It was like, you know, with machine guns, <laughs> you know, Wizard of Oz with machine guns or something. Do you remember a song? No, that? I don't. I don't remember anything. Does it exist anywhere? I don't know. Maybe in I'm... some box in one of my brother's, you know, houses or something like that. I don't know. Just always angling for a revival. Oh, I'm always right, looking yeah. for something that has to be done. Stuff that should not ever be done again. And so that was the first musical that you wrote. What was the second or the first real serious attempt where you were like, okay, I'm sitting down. I'm, I'm going to do this now for real. Um, it, was, it became very serious for me to really pursue the career as a, a writer um, when, I was, when I moved to New York. And it wasn't until about 1982-83 where I was involved with the 78th Street Theater Lab there, a wonderful uh, couple, Mark Zeller and Dana Zeller-Alexis. And um, I worked for them as an accompanist, as a music director and vocal coach, etc. And I was starting to make a career doing that. And I recognized that you can get pigeonholed very, very quickly in New York if you're talented, you can play. I could sight read and I could sight transpose and I was a good accompanist. And I went, um, I don't want to do that. I came here to write musicals. So I... You know, I, I forswore all the piano playing and uh, music director jobs and went to go work at Tower Records Classical and, and then really put my nose to the grindstone and began 
writing musicals, joined the BMI workshop, which was very, very important, uh, uh, very influential for me because I met a lot of my mentors uh, through that. Alan Fitzy, a great lyricist, um, Maureen Yeston, Alan Menken, uh, Ed Clavan, great lyricist, you know. So it was great. It was a great experience. But that's really about 1983 I began really writing and, one of my, and began showing work to uh, various people around town. Uh, Ira Wetzman at Lincoln Center, for instance, or um, uh, Wiley Halsam at ICM, became an agent. And uh, it's uh, the networking that went on normally and just had to keep doing it, you know. Uh, my first show, I think, that, that got recognition for myself might have been um, Buzzsaw Berkeley that I wrote with Doug Wright and the wonderful Chris Ashley, um, a hysterically funny book. It was done at the WPA Theater down in Chelsea at the time. And the theater's no longer there. But it was, um, Doug came up with the idea of a mashup between um, Mickey and Judy movies and slasher movies. And it was wonderful for me as the composer and songwriter for the piece to be able to end every song in a death. It was very, very exciting to, to end with a you know, murder at the end of every song. So, and I remember Lynn Ahrens, who I knew from the my workshop, she said, you know what your problem is, Michael John? You don't know how to button a song. So when I finally wrote Bus Off Berkeley, I said, come on and say, I said, you guys, so, so, they were the best buttons because everybody died at the end of their song that they sang. I want to go back to something you said, which I think is a, was obviously a very courageous and strong thing that you did, which was turn down a whole bunch of work. Yes. Because I hear this, you know, once you can prove that you have a certain level of ability, which you said you could sight read, you could transpose, mm -hmm. this industry will put you on a track and well, give, throw you a lot of work. And a lot of people have a hard time turning that stuff down. It's good money. Well, you it's, have to keep a roof over your head. You have to yeah. feed yourself. You have to, if you have a family, you've got to devote, you know, the resources to maintain a lot of things. And New York is not a cheap city. So you, you know? say all those things. So think back. What gave you the courage and the confidence to be like, you know what? Screw that stable paycheck, which you, I'm sure, could have been conducting on Broadway very young, very early, making good money, pension, all that stuff. How did you say no to that for a cashier job at Tower Records? It just was um, compulsion, obsession, um, desire, uh, those things that that you, you can't go to sleep at night if you're not going to do what it is that makes you the most happy, you know, and uh, and I feel, or they give you the most fulfillment. And what is my purpose for being here except to write musicals, you know, it just never, it never crossed my mind. And of course, I'm absolutely stupid, too, to do it all, too, as I tell my students at NYU. I go, God, you're dumb to be doing this. It's crazy. It's insane that you want to pursue a career doing this. But at the same time, follow your happiness. You know, you have to. Otherwise, what's the point? You know it as well. You know it as well, Ken. I certainly do. I want to ask you about the BMI workshop. Because of all the composer lyricists I know, I would immediately not put you in the BMI workshop bucket because of the types of shows that you do. So talk to me about what you learned, why it was valuable for you, or even the things that you were like, oh, this is amazing, but this is actually not what I have to forget. Because you do ad real adventuresome stuff. Well, it's, that's a great question. Um... Well, I feel like if you don't have craft under your belt and learn what made the great musicals great musicals, what makes a great song a great song, unless you know that, you can't, you can't go throwing the plates against the wall. 
you know, if you if that's your goal, if you want to if you want to switch things up, you have to know what you're switching up. You just don't go out there and you know do things. You have to know what the craft is. Craft is 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 essential. Craft is what you can fall back on in the really hard times too when you're putting on a show. You know, when you need to do that rewrite immediately, craft is what's going to get you through the day, not artistry. You know, because it's, it's, it's craft will get you through the business parts of things too. Knowing how to rewrite, knowing how a lyric works, knowing how a piece of music should work. You need to know those things. And that was what was very, very helpful about the Be My Workshop to me. Uh, and also too, like I said, great mentors who were very hard, very, very hard on me. And, um, and I think that was really essential too, to say, no, you can't get away with that rhyme. You can't get away with that. That makes no sense. And even though it might have been to a certain degree frustrating to me to go well, but that's me that I want to say it that way but if I'm, that was not the place to do that it was to learn how to do it right and then go off and I knew when my when my, when I reached my limit there at the BMI workshop I knew come the third year when it was you know that I that I wanted to go off and, and explore a little bit more and um, and so you know when you're supposed to stay there and you know when you're supposed to leave but it was still very invaluable for me at the time it's about learning craft, if you, you can't get away with it, you have to. You know it too. As producer, there's a craft involved in producing, and so many people don't think that there is. To be a successful producer, you know it is because of your craftsmanship that you've been able to be a successful producer. Same thing for a writer. You know, now I choose different things to do. I'm not. I, I don't skew commercial, although I could if I, I wanted to. Um, it's just that that world doesn't jive with me right now but my place in life right now where I'm at right where now talk to me a little bit about that, that <laughs> talk to me a little bit about that because I was going to ask you mm -hmm. that exact question you mm -hmm. are obviously talented enough to be able to write I'm sure whatever you wanted to write if someone gave you a quote unquote task like mm -hmm. if someone said hey there was this blockbuster movie that grossed you know one billion dollars last year and we're going to do a musical version of it would you like to write that? Yes. You would. I would give it two seconds, but no one, no one comes to me with them. You really? Know? No, I'm too esoteric, apparently, or something. I don't know what it is. I'd be right into I've won three Emmys doing Wonder Pets on TV. It's the most commercial piece of, you know, TV on the planet. You know, that did a lot of, you know, that's my commercial thing. It's not like I can't do it. You know, that's part of the craft, too. You have to learn how to do that as well. I've been fortunate, though, to... Um, be able to do something that's just a little bit outside the box. I really enjoy living there. And um, there's a, it's not that it's, um, it's certainly harder to do it, what I do. Much more harder, and, uh, much more hard. Uh, and I love the challenge, I think, is probably the, the greater thing. Because um, I have, I think probably OCD or something like that. Well, it's, what is it called when you can't, what's it? ADD? ADD, that thing, yes, the, whatever, just one of those things. I know, I'm not good with the diseases. Um, it's, it, I have that probably where I get bored really quickly, you know, and I have to constantly keep myself challenged. If it's, you know, because it's, it's fun to be uh, in dangerous territory, you know, knowing that you can't musicalize Medea, that's awful. Musicals can't have children killed at the end. Well, I'm going to write that one. 
So where do you get those ideas? I mean, I've, I've heard, I think it was Kendra and Ab, someone was like, every time we hear that a show or we think a show can't be musicalized, that's when we do that's it. That's right, uh-huh. Is that... John Kendra is a great example, great, great mentor, wonderful, wonderful man. So how do you find an idea and go, that one, I'm going to do Medea, or I'm going to do that and a Ferber novel, or I'm going to, like, what strikes Oh, so many, there are so many... Uh, Actors that go into their life. In, in the case of Giant, for instance, um, that was uh, Edna Ferber's great niece, Julie uh, Gilbert, who came to me with it. And I turned it down because I didn't know what to do with, you know, a 5,000 page book about 25 years of Texas history. I mean, what, what was I going to do with that? How would I do that? And, and uh, But then I spread it again. And then I said yes to her because I realized, oh, I can do anything with this. I can make it a three night thing if I want to do this. How crazy would that be? Make it epic. Make it happen. So, um, and in the case of um, uh, Marie Christine, um, that was uh, something that just came through a whole variety of sources. You know, I tell my students at NYU, I, I think that um, the Renaissance can be very greatly is, is greatly overrated sometimes because um, in the medieval times, they, you know, people believed that the genies lived in the walls, and that if you're smart enough and astute enough and, and bright enough and, and quick enough, you could grab the genie by the tail. And the Renaissance, of course, teaches us that genius resides in us. Well, I don't necessarily know about that. I do know that if you're aware of the world around you, the ideas are just always around you for something creative to, to spark in you and to make that happen and turn it into a musical story. You know it too. You wrote your own book for getting the band back together. You know, something must have made you want to do that. It's not like, right? I mean, can you put your finger on that? No, it was something that came your way. And you went, I must do this. And your heart's desire, you know, came true. That's what it's all about. You sometimes do all three elements of a musical. Sometimes you collaborate. Do you have a preference? Um, well, it's lonely doing all three. I mean, it's really lonely and kind of schizophrenic, too, you know, because you walk around the house yelling at yourself. You know, the composer's yelling at the lyricist, the lyricist is yelling at the book writer, blah, 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 you know. So, um, so, and it also, collaboration is the best thing. That's what makes theater theater, you know. Um, I find it expedient to sometimes do all three things. And it depends on the type of show I want to write. If it's a lyrical musical, in other words, if the story is told primarily through lyric, sung words, then I prefer to write my own book for that. If it's um, something like Giant, where I need a help at hand to wrestle that beast into some sort of sturdy, dramatic structure. I need to have a great playwright to work with, with uh, Sybil Pearson, for instance, who's my collaborator for that. Um, so, and I prefer working with collaborators, because like I say, that's really what makes theater. Theater um, is working with other people. Um, so it's a matter of expediency or what the project I feel demands. If I feel like I need a book writer to work with, I will go and get one. I won't be egotistical about it. You know, you have to have that. How do you maintain your objectivity when you're doing all three? How do you, you yell at each other and settle <laughs> those know. arguments? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know if I should be objective. I think that the director's job maybe is to have an objective eye or the producer's eye is to be that. I mean, I trust my producers the most, you know, the people outside of the actual creative process, but enough in it that they can they are the ones that can be objective for me. Because I think the best producers that I've worked with have always allowed me that complete freedom to make mistakes and rewrite or, you know, and, and to sit back and go, yes, or, you know what, no, we need to do this here. This is what needs to happen. And being very protective of me, too, as well. So I don't know if I need to be objective as a writer. 
when I do it if I have good producers uh, behind me. You have a story of one of those good producers who helped you through a moment of a show? Oh, yeah, wonderful. wonderful. Uh, Scott Rudin was uh, amazing to work with uh, when I did uh, the, the Wild Party on Broadway with George C. Wall. Um, I, and, and also not just Scott, but the whole uh, four other producers. These days there's like 29 producers to a show. Back in those days, four was a lot. Um, and uh, they, I swear to God, I was like circling the wagons around me. I was not... Um, privy to a lot of other drama that was happening on stage and off, you know, I was just, my job was to be the, 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 the writer of the score and to write the best score that I could possibly write. And I felt so protected the whole journey through by these wonderful producers led by Scott. And I think that was really, you know, that, that's when I learned from that experience what a good producer is and how protective they are of, of the artist. It was a very strange time because, well, of course, yeah. there was that other wild party yeah, going Andrew's on. Yeah, show was happening off, off Broadway at the same time, too. Isn't that ironic? How was that for you at that time, knowing that that was going on? It just seems like, first of all, I don't think that would ever happen today. I just don't think we would do that. You never know. I mean, it, it's happened. It's not the first time in history uh, the same type of show. I mean, Phantom of the Opera is a great example. Arthur Covet and, and um, Moriarty's version happened virtually at the same time. Andrews, Sir Andrews, Lord Andrews, but was he not? He's just Andrew. He's, he's Andrew. Um, and uh, so uh, you know, it, it happens. And also, too, you never know what's going to happen to your musical. You never know. You know, ours could have folded at any stage in the workshop process. Any stage in the reading process could have folded. So could have Andrew Lipa's version. We never know. So we have to keep moving forward on whatever trajectory it is. And if it reaches its goal of getting produced, it's produced. And, you know, I, think, I always think there's room for both versions of the piece. They're both so quite different, you know. Mine's, mine's more... Uh, Andrew's more, I think, audience or, or user-friendly is what I like to say. I always know when, when the college or university that does um, that version of the Wild Party, I always know they probably didn't find the singers for it all. Because, and mine is very racially diverse. Uh, George and mine, we are specifically, you need, to, you need to have a very diverse cast to do our show. It was very so, ahead of its time, actually. It was, exactly right. It was very much so. And it's challenging musically. You know, so you, you have to have top, top, top to do our version of the Wild Party. So, but not to say that there's anything uh, not hard about Andrews either, but there's ways the world can hold both of them, that's what I feel. Do you read reviews? Yes, of course I do. You say, of course you do, like, oh, of course I must, because... I must. Um, it's business. I need to know what the business is of it all. Well, how can I, if it's a great review, I want to know that it's a good review, so I can use that to possibly help the publication uh, you know, finding the way to get that show to have an extra life after it's an initial opening. So for business reasons, yes. If it's not a good review, um, I have to know that and how to play that. I have to also read it. And Now, a lot of people don't. And I always say, well, if you read the good reviews, you have to, you know, and you believe the good reviews, you have to believe the bad reviews. And a lot of people don't read the reviews, and I understand why they are. My personal thing is, yeah, I read everything because I'm interested in what they're saying. I'm actually interested in what critics have to say. And it's saddening to me that the critical environment in our, our city here is, is almost nil. I mean, with the papers going left and right, and where do you find good criticism anymore? I don't know if you find it in a lot of the blogs or the people just writing on Facebook or tweeting stuff like that. And you know, I don't know if that's criticism anymore. I miss that, that. And there were so many great critics back when I was starting out that I loved reading. I mean, John Simon, I still 
Maverick and John Sami, one of the bright ones, you know, one of the great ones. And Critch was terrific too. You see, you know, the good writers. And you learn something from the good writers who write about theater. And Mike Feingold, for instance, I always find very fascinating to read. And I miss that, that, that extra voice out there in the world. Now it's just all snark. I find it interesting that you read them primarily for the business aspect of yes. it. In thinking, so you really have to think of your career and all of your things that you do as a business. Yes, You're of trying... course. Yes. It is a business. It's called show business. You know? Um, yeah, of course you would think business. You know? Uh, I, I can't imagine any young writer wanting to be in the business not thinking about how to support oneself in the business and how to make one's work have the life um, outside of its original production. Let's go back the to the recordings that you need to have to document the piece, you know, the, the, the publication, the, the, the distribution rights for the piece. All those things have to be thought of as money. You can think of those things in advance of your show opening. Let's go back to the beginning sure. of your career again because you said something very, <coughs> excuse me, very quickly. Oh, you know, I was doing all that networking and things like that, and it sounded very easy to you. And I think that's probably hard for a lot of young writers, especially now. How did you get the attention of the public back in the day, of all these people back in the day when you were just starting out writer? Um, well, I mean, through um, people who heard my work, you know, I didn't make any... I, I would get on the phone. Remember when there were phones and phone books? I would go through the phone book and call people. Cold call people? Yeah, call Hal Prince. You cold called Hal Prince? Yeah. And just said? Hi. <laughs> you know what I mean? What, how do you, what should I do for my work? Blah, blah, blah. Or walk into somebody's office or walk into somebody's theater and say, hi. You know, I just did that. I mean... I just did that. And was... Tell me a... I would do it to you if you were around. <laughs> Back when I was a kid. And but I reached out to you. I mean I reach out to people just you know, not because I want something from them all, but because I think that they're doing good work. And I'm and I'm curious about what it is that they do. And you know, and it's fascinating to me. You know, um I, I loved your once on the silent revival, for instance. I thought it was one my friend Jenna was also a producer now. And I told her she was going to win the Tony. You guys were gonna I told you too. You did. And, <laughs> and I said, You guys are going to win the Tony, even though you're up against two, you know, BMOs at the theater, you know. Um, and, and wonderful productions in and of themselves. But I knew you guys were going to do that. And it fascinated me how you marketed that show. That to me was really like cool. Really cool. And I love that Jenna was learning how to do that too through working with you too. She's a wonderful actress. She was in my movie Hello Again. And I love that girl so much. So it's, it's a learning process. And so why can't you, why can't you pick up the phone and call someone? Um, back in the day, also too, there were more shows happening at a rapid time, there weren't like the, the British um, things that sit there in the theaters for so long. Um, so there were, even though there wasn't a lot back in the early 80s, there was enough so that you could constantly see people out. And you knew that you could go to Sardis and you might run into Cy Coleman there, or you might run into John Cander there, even some Sondheim or something. You could run into people, um, you know, um, and you talk with them. And pass on little things, hear their opinions, you know, get that, you know, get that energy going, you know, that, that was the community back then. Now that shows don't open as frequently as they do, and if they do, they all happen within the same one week, 
you know, in October or April, um, you know, uh, you don't get that, that sense of community anymore. You find it now more in some of the programs like the program that I teach at NYU, where we do have writers and it's strictly about, well, how I could um, share with them what it is I've learned from others. You mentioned the Tony Awards. You are a Tony nominator, yes? My third year. Third year. Have you enjoyed that process? Stressful? It's hard um, when the crunch happens. I don't know why everybody feels they must open in April. So, you know, because to get in under the wire, because it becomes a daze sometimes, because you're going to the theater all, you know, eight times a, uh, a week sometimes with the amount of shows that are opening with uh, boom, boom, boom. Um, energy. I wish they kind of spread it out, but again, that's business, I guess, and they have to try to get it into the under the Tony wire. So, um, but it's been an enormous um, responsibility and a great privilege to be a Tony nominator. Um, you see a lot of me, you see a lot of um, shit. You know, you see a lot of really just mind-blowingly like, what is this? Um, but it's all assuaged by seeing some fun stuff. Like here we show there's a band, um, they're getting the band back together. Um, a couple great performances and plays that are just, you know, blow your brain out. You know, Glenda Jackson, Big Tall Women, it's, it's amazing, Lord Metcalf and Dallas House. These are indelible things. Or incredible experiences like um, going to see you know, all of the Angels in America all, all together. Or George Wolf's um, remarkable production of Ice and Cullen, that five-hour thing. So those are things that I might not have meet, been able to see, given my schedule, um, for one thing. And also to the price of it all is, is quite steep. So to see all those shows, you know, one thing, I, you know, it's impossible to do, you know, to, in anybody's budget, I would think, you know. So that's been a great uh, privilege to be a, a nominator. But there is a lot of, whoa, you go, whoa, whoa, what? How did I get here? You know, there is that, that thing. I mean, and I'm not supposed to talk about anything specific, but um, I think that's pretty much a, a general consensus. Among we'll talk about that when the mic's off. Uh, <laughs> so you do also teach at NYU. Yes, I do. What do you find is the most common lesson you have to give new writers coming up? What do you find yourself repeating over and over to folks? Be yourself. Be honest. And be unafraid of challenging yourself. Those are the three things that I think there are good mantras to live by. You know, there are more technical things like don't edit yourself. You what know, does that mean? Don't while you're in the process of writing, don't start editing yourself until you've written something, and then you can go back and do some editing. So puke up a first draft, just get exactly. it out. Exactly the dirty, the dirty play. That's how you write. Oh yeah, just the dirty thing. Just get something out there. Write a song a day. It doesn't matter if anybody's going to hear it or not. Are you going to make a Grammy, you know, album out of it all? No, write the song a day, good or bad. Write something every day. You have to. It's, it's called practice, you know. You have to be, to be a good pianist. You practice. You be a good golfer. What do you, you you practice every day, don't you? So you know you got to do that and to, to be good at what you do, and uh, but not to edit yourself while you're doing it. Not to be you know going oh I'm not good enough or that's not good enough. Don't go into that place because you'll never write anything. So that's that's like a technical thing that I, I show. Just did... be true to yourself. I mean, it's really to be honest in you know just be honest with yourself. I know. Are you happy doing this? 
I know you talked about being disappointed with some shows that open and how did they get here, but overall, how do you think Broadway's doing today in the the state of the American musical? How do you think we're doing? Great. I mean, it's amazing. I think it's in wonderful shape. I think it's thrilling to see how everybody wants to do musicals. You know, they've been saying over and over again, the American musical is dead. Well, you know, and then it's not. There's places where it comes from. The Broadway musical, the musical created for Broadway may not exist, specifically for Broadway anymore. We find it in other places and we bring it to Broadway. That's a fundamental change. There are many musicals. I think, I mean, The Wild Party was created to be on Broadway. There are very few that come along that way. And I think that's one of the last ones that was specifically created. Um, a lot of things are found regionally now. Musicals are done regionally. And so that's another wonderful world of possibilities out there for young writers to find. Uh, worlds in which the regional theaters are doing new work and daring work too at that. Um, so that's very, very exciting to see. And of course, off Broadway, which is getting a little expensive and with rents going up and spaces being you know hard to find, that's tricky now. I'm, I'm wondering to see what what will happen with them. Some of these new tax cuts. I'm very curious to see what's going to happen for a not-for-profit. It should, could be very, very detrimental to a not-for-profit. I don't know. You know probably know, know better than I about that situation. Um, what will happen with not-for-profit. So we'll have to keep an eye on that to see how that will affect. Because um, you know not-for-profits can't write off anymore. So, so we'll see what happens with that. Be dangerous. And you mentioned. Wild Party was written for Broadway. When you sit down to write something new, do you think about a destination now? Do you think, oh, well, this I could think get... space. Space. Think of space. If, it, if I imagine a piece in a big space, you know, you, there's something that you create in, in, the, in, in the score, in the music, or the palette, I like to think of, the colors that I would choose. Giant, for instance. I always knew it was going to be in a large space. It had to be. Because it was giant. I don't want it in a, you know, I'm not going to do it in a black box. So the colors were red, white, and blue. I mean, I really painted with primary colors with that piece. So the piece has that scope musically and um, everything. For First Daughter Suite, or First Lady Suite, which I knew would be done off-Broadway, chamber-ish. I hate the word chamber musical. I don't know what it means. We think of chambermaid or chamber pot whenever we hear that. Um, but it is, um, but it's, it's an easy enough term that people can identify with. Um, I knew that that, I wanted it intimate. And because uh, I wanted to, uh, to be like a microscope on these women that I was writing about. So therefore, my music could be a little bit more intricate, more complicated, if you will, complex, let me put it that way. Um, and uh, uh, so space was very important, is, is important for me. Now, Broadway, I, I, you know, I don't know, because some of the theaters here are so intimate and so beautiful. I mean, I love the new Second Stage home so much. I love the new the, the, the Helen Hayes, it's adorable. But even like something like the Richard Rogers is, is intimate. You know, you love those theaters, you know. I loved what they did with the Harry Potter theater. It's, it, I call it the Harry Potter theater now. I don't know why. Because it's, it, I couldn't believe that old airplane hangar was suddenly became something so beautiful to sit in for. I hope they keep it there forever. It suddenly became very intimate. So that's, you know, so, you know, there's a lot of houses on Broadway that actually could be great for the smaller musicals, more intimate musicals. What I love about this conversation already is you're so positive, courageous. You throw up those first drafts. You don't edit yourself. Like this business, however, can be disappointing at times. Oh yeah, and I'm sure you've had moments uh, in your career when you've been disappointed. How do you deal with that and go on to what's next? Oh, I take the old adage of how 
Al Prince, you know, the next morning after you open the show, you go to go into work on the new piece. You should already have your new piece ready to go, and then you're not so worried about if people didn't like it or it was you know, it's going to flop and close. You're on to your next work. It's on to your next work, on to the next thing. Don't look back. Can't look back. You know, no regrets except, you know, learn from them, if you will. Um, but don't look back. You just got to keep moving forward. You know, life's short. Get as much done as you can. Have fun doing it, too. All right. My last question, which is yes, my sir. genie question. Genie question. I want you to imagine the genie from Aladdin comes to visit you and says, Michael John, I'm going to grant you one wish. What's the one thing in this business that drives you so crazy, mm -hmm. gets you angry, frustrated, would have you banging your head against the piano, that you'd ask this genie to wish away in an instant? The thing that right now, where I'm at right now in my life, is um, roles for women and how women are depicted on stage, particularly in American musical. And I want to, I would like to have that changed. I'd like to have more complex roles, deeper roles. Um, and that's not just, you know, I mean, and diversity, please. You know, to, to, so that I could have what I see in the world when I walk outside my door on, you know, 105th in Columbus. I want to see the world that I see on the stage. And I want to hear it singing. And I wish that we took more chances with that, with our writers, who are a lot of talented writers out there that still... Have yet to. I guess that's why I write is to fill a void that I'm seeing. So that that would be the thing that I wish the genie would could make happen. And in lieu of the genie, I'll do some work on my own to make sure that those roles are created. I love it. Taking wishes into your own hands. You gotta. Well, thank you, you for that. It. Thanks so much for joining us thank today, you. all everyone out there, and we'll see you next time. Hey, it's Leslie Odom Jr. here on the Broadway Podcast Network to tell you about the RISE Theatre Directory, a program of maestro music. RISE is a national online resource designed to connect and empower backstage and administrative and creative theatre professionals from underrepresented backgrounds. If you work or aspire to work in the theater community, this can help you find your next project. And if you hire theater professionals, search the Rise Theater directory to find your next team. Create your profile now and get more information by visiting risetheater.org. That's theater with an R-E-R-I-S-E-T-H-E-A-T-R-E.org because only together we rise. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Ch -ch 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 -chumba. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.